Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation, we're started on our Anxiety and Depression Codex. So the goal here is, uh, you know, if you have anxiety or depression, if you know someone that does and they go to a practitioner, they may know one, two, three percent of all the possible treatments. And our goal with the project is to go over approximately 5,000 sources and literature and articles and videos and uh, assemble, hopefully, let's say 20 percent of all the possible known treatments for anxiety and depression. So that's the goal. If you want to find out more about the effort and look into donating, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is Emily Monroe. She's an executive director of what's called Casita Copan. The website is C-A-S-I-T-A-C-O-P-A-N.org. So Emily, thank you for coming. Thank you, Richard. Uh, it's really it's really great to be here. Yeah, so tell me, well, you don't sound like you're from Honduras, but uh, how did you end up there and how did you start this project? Uh, sure. Yes, I am not. I'm actually from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I moved to Honduras about 10 years ago. It was not my intention to start this organization, but it was kind of one of those one thing led to another. So Casita, what we do, is, so we're located in Copan, Honduras, which is actually just a small rural community. And we really try to work with single mothers and with children, and we try to keep families together. So a lot of times what happens in communities like like ours, or I call it ours because I've lived there now for, for 10 years, but a lot, of, a lot of times children end up in institutions or children's homes. And what we try to do is really stop that from happening. We try to work with families so that kids can grow up with their families and in their communities communities of origin. So I kind of, uh, you know, it was not on purpose that I came to run this organization, but, you know, it sort of was meant to be, I think. Well, what's the dynamic in Honduras? Uh, you know, I know there's like San Pedro Sula and Tegucigalpa are the big cities. Do you focus there or are you kind of out in the boondocks like 
I guess Copan is like these these old Aztec or Mayan ruins, but I think it's more rural, right, than the major cities? Correct. We're about about four hours by car from San Pedro Sula, which is the, the city that kind of gets in the news a lot for being very violent and then recently for sort of being the epicenter of the caravan, the migrant caravan. So our community is a lot different. Uh, we're really actually close to the, the Guatemalan border. So what, what happens in our town is we have a lot, a lot of migration. So we end up with a lot of uh, single parent homes, uh, mostly families that are being, you know, entirely run by women, a lot of children being raised by grandparents because there are so many family members uh, migrating to the United States. It's also because it is a small town, you know, the economy is very dependent on tourism. So we had a very, a very rough couple of years. Since COVID happened, obviously it affected the whole world, but it definitely hit our town pretty extremely. We also had a couple of hurricanes at the end of last year. So it's been, it's been a rough time. You know, it is, we definitely, it's a safer community than, you know, than one of the larger cities. But on the downside, we don't have hospitals or kind of the traditional support services that you would expect in in a modern in a modern community let's say so how does uh, Casita Copan work what do you work with and, and how so our main focus is actually working with the mothers um, so our main our main program is our daycare center and what we do is we have a safe place where children can be during the day while their mothers are at work. Because like I mentioned, a lot of the mothers are responsible for their whole family and that can tend to lead to child abandonment. It can lead to children leaving the home too soon. So what we try to do is give that safe space where kids can be and their moms can can trust that their children are well taken care of. Because there are such high levels of malnourishment and problems with health, we also focus a lot on that. So all of our children get really well-balanced meals. We're working with education. We're kind of filling in the gaps that the family can't provide, let's say. Uh, so that's what our, our main kind of flagship program is the daycare. And the point of that is really prevention. It's trying to keep the child from ending up in an institution or in a home because their mother is too poor to take care of them. So then our next program is called our casitas. And those are temporary foster care homes. And those are for kids that really can't live with their biological family. But what we try to do is keep them as connected to their community as possible. So we have several homes that we run throughout the town of Copan. And so the kids live in as close to kind of a family style environment as possible. We're not trying to create an institution or a large scale orphanage. We're trying to get the kids to have as close to a family life as they can. And we also work with their families to try to get them to be reintegrated with their family when that's possible. So that's kind of our main two programs. Uh, We're always creating new initiatives or kind of responding to the needs of our community, but those two programs are kind kind of our bread and butter. Well, I've been to Honduras. It's been a long time, like over 20 years, but it seemed to be very family oriented and families hang out. So what do they do before you were there? Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. You know, one of the things that that people think, you know, or if they go to developing countries, people often think that there's, you know, these large amounts of orphans that need to be saved. And in most cases, that's really, that's not the case. And that's especially not the case in Honduras. Most of the children who end up in orphanages do have living relatives and they often have living parents. And so that's sort of one of the things that we're trying we're trying to do, like you say, work with the family that already exists. People in Honduras, they, they're they incredibly family-oriented. They love children. Many times people will already live with extended family members and take in kind of anyone, you know, to give them a home. And so, so that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to kind of work with the families that are already there. Uh, so I'll give you an example. So if we have, let's say, we had a family 
of six children that lost their mother last year. She got sick and she died. And so you could take those six children and put them into an orphanage, but they had a living aunt, they had a relative. And the problem was that relative just didn't have space for them. So instead of taking those six children and removing them from their family, we decided to work with the aunt instead and kind of help her to, we helped her build a small addition to her home so that she could take care of those kids. And so that's what we try to do, really work with the families that are already there so that it's not, you know, an organization that that has to be there. We try to work with the strengths of the community. Is daycare a thing in, in these countries in Central America or is it like a totally alien concept? It's really not. Um, what is done more traditionally is children were kind of just left at home. Um, what has happened in Copan or in some of these rural communities is that the makeup of the community is starting to change. So it used to be safer to leave children unattended during the day. Their neighbors would look out for them and it was kind of, you know, everyone would look out for each other. But, uh, you know, times have changed and things are not quite as safe as they used to be. So there really is kind of this new push for, for a need for daycare. And in this year, especially because the schools closed during the, during the pandemic and they still haven't opened, we still don't have any school, any schools that are functioning in Honduras, at least in in the public sector. So what happens is you've got kids that are at home all day, completely unattended. They're not in supposedly they're getting virtual school, but it's not, it's not really working, you know? So the, the, the need for daycare, while it's a new concept, it's something that is, is definitely a lot more prevalent in the cities. And now is, is something that people are looking for. Uh, we have a, a huge waiting list. Unfortunately, we're not able to take care of all of the kids that we wish we could, but it's clearly something that, that is a, a need. Well, what about finding a parent or a group of parents that are willing to set up their own like rotating daycare in their homes to amplify your reach if you can't help everybody? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been on our list of of one of the things that we've seen is that it works well when you have the daycare centers that are a little bit smaller, the group's kind of small. So we had had, we'd actually had a similar idea to that of working in the different communities and trying to get a couple of people in charge and taking care of each other. I think it's not, it would take a lot of, it would take a lot of work, um, but I think it's a great idea for trying to kind of play off of the existing strengths in the community. Well, what are the type of work that mothers do in the communities you're in? Is it more traditional, whether you stay home or are they now going out into uh, a two-job household, two-parent, two-job household? Most of the households that we work with are single parents, so it's only the mother. Um, And that's actually something that is becoming a lot more common across the board. Um, So a lot more women are working now. It's it's definitely it's definitely something you see for the population that we work with, um, which is the the lower income population. Most of the women work generally as domestic helpers, so they might work in a home. That's another thing that's very still very common in Honduras for people to have a paid domestic worker who will come to their home and they're normally not paid very well. Then they might work in in customer service, so in food service or some things like that, but again, they're all all very low paying jobs. And when I say low paying, we're talking kind of 100, 150 dollars a month. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, what's a, a decent 
income for someone living in Copan in Honduras? So the we do have a, a pretty solid minimum wage, which would be about 400 US dollars. But in a town like Copan, most people are not getting paid minimum wage. People are kind of, some people are, but it's few. People would get kind of paid about half that. So about 200, $300. You could live, you can live decently on the minimum wage. But unfortunately, most, most smaller businesses, even if they wanted to pay it, um, there's just not enough, you know, they're not making enough to be able to, to pay their, their employees that salary. What size classes do you guys have? And what's, uh, I don't know, what are some of the things that you figured out, maybe some of the missteps early on? And how have you, you know, tuned the programs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the biggest challenges, I think, has just been sort of dealing with the specific needs of the kids that we have. So a lot of the kids that are in our program, whether they're in our daycare or they live with us full time in our foster care program, they've been through a lot of trauma. And trauma is something that we don't talk a lot about in in Honduras, it's not something that people have a lot of understanding of. Even in the United States, we're just starting to learn about trauma and how it affects us. So um, I think one of the things we learned is is kind of what it is that kids need to learn. And so sometimes before, you know, I have a lot of people ask me, oh, well, do your kids speak English? Have you taught them English? Have you taught them this? And to be honest, no, because we've just had to start. So we've had to go back kind of even further. Uh, we focus a lot on life skills. We focus a lot on coping skills, you know, how to, how to be able to communicate, how to handle emotions. That's a huge thing um, when you're working with kids who've experienced trauma, you know, just kind of how to handle those up and downs that they've had. Most of our kids are very behind academically. So we are doing a lot of catch up work. We're helping them and kind of even if they some of them have a lot of, you know, cognitive delays, uh, developmental delays that make things a little bit difficult. So what we try to do is we work in smaller groups. Our kids have a different schedule of classes similar to kind of a school or an after school program. But again, focused more on life skills, focused more on things in the community. Some of our older kids, we do internships with them and things like that so that they can get out into the community and really learn skills that they're actually going to be able to use in the future. So we do a little bit of everything like that. But again, that's kind of our big focus is on on finding those life skills that they need to be successful in their life. Well, it sounds like there's so much need that you need to really get all the help you can. What about getting older boys and girls to come in and to teach to the younger kids or to hang out with them like a big brother or big sister program that goes along with the daycare? Yeah, absolutely. And we actually, there's a really great, there's a great bilingual school that's in the community. And so that's, we partner a lot with them. We've got a lot of the high school students that come and we'll work with our younger kids. So we've been really lucky in in the town where we live that there are people who are interested in that. Um, So we do that a lot. That's actually, that's huge. And I think for our kids to be able to see other examples of kids who have been more successful or, or who maybe are, you know, doing something good with their lives, that's a great, a great inspiration for them. What about uh, boys versus girls? You know, you're saying that there's a lot of single family homes. So, you know, I guess for the girls, I don't know if you provide any education, you know, be careful, don't rush into sex, that kind of thing. And for the boys, you know, same thing. And it's really not morally or ethically right to just go and have fun with a girl and then leave them and they have to raise your baby type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a huge thing for us. And also in the community where we live, I mean, this sounds, this sounds a little bit dark, but we do live in a, in a town where there is tourism. So you have to prepare kids for making sure that they don't fall into any kind of tourist traps with sexual tourism. Um, So things, talking about sex and talking about um, being safe and consent and all of those things, those are topics we start with the kids at a pretty early age. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I think, you know, in general, a lot of the 
almost, I'd say almost all of the kids who are part of our program, their mothers had them when they were under the age of 18. So we've seen with, with girls, you know, if you can kind of keep them from having their first child in those formative years, uh, you can just dramatically increase, you know, the chance that they're going to be able to do something with their life. So yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you have to talk with both, you know, there's the, there's the education for the girls. And then there's also the education for the boys to learn how to be, you know, if they do get in that situation to learn how to be responsible fathers and to not just leave the women in, in charge of everything. That's a really good. Yeah. What, what age are girls uh, starting to uh, be in danger of being approached and, you know, you know, into getting into those kind of activities, whether by tourists or by just boys that are hanging around, et cetera. Unfortunately here, it's kind of around the, like the 11, 12 age is when things start to get a little bit more dangerous. And yeah, unfortunately, it kind of right at the, the level here, you have primary school up until sixth grade. And then from seventh grade on, it's a different school. It's a high school. And kind of whenever the kids make that transition and they're going into that high school environment, that's when it, things get a lot riskier. What about having some of the uh, single mothers come in and talk to the young girls and boys and say, like, this is what happened to me. You know, I got pregnant at 15 and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, this is my situation. And here's the hard parts of it. And I don't want you young people to end up like me. You're only a few years away from when it happened to me, et cetera. Do you have people come in and, and do that? You know, we haven't done something like that, but that sounds really interesting. One of the things that we have is we do have regular meetings with with all of our moms. Um, and so we're often talking about these topics with them, helping them kind of understand that these are the lessons that they need to share with their children. Um, you know, and kind of like if you, if we as adults have made mistakes, then we know that our children are going to also make those mistakes. You know, that's just how life is. Um, so we, we work a lot with them on kind of understanding how to share their story. But I really like that idea. That would be really an interesting an interesting way to bring up some of these topics, but in a, in a safe space. I like that a lot. I think we'll try that. Yeah. I'm sure the kids, their eyes will bug out. They'll laugh yeah. with embarrassment and all that stuff, but <laughs> you know, at least some of them, they'll remember it in the future. And then again, it won't be too long from then, you know, like let's say your average is 11 years old, you know, by the time they get to be 13, 14, the memory hopefully will still be fresh. And even if you can, I guess, push, let's say teen pregnancy one year forward, that would be a win or two years forward, whatever exactly. you can do. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's sort of one of the, the other kind of theme that's very taboo in the community because it's still a very religious community is, is birth control. But that's something that we have, that we talk about very openly. Um, we provide birth control to either mothers or older children, as long as if they still have their mother, their mother has to consent. But, you know, we've, we try to make it as, as easy for them as possible so that they can, like you said, kind of push that, any risk of pregnancy, push it a little bit further into the future. And that way they can stay in school and they just have such a greater chance at success. What, uh, what ages do you typically deal with? I mean, when I hear daycare, I think very, very young kids, but right. do you have well, <laughs> them stratified into different ages? It, yeah. And honestly, when we started the daycare, that was, that was the focus on younger children. So we have a, we have a preschool center. We take children um, from the age of one that's kind of our, our early age because we really want mothers to bond with their children. Uh, so, and most jobs will kind of let uh, a mother work with a child who's, who's still an infant. So we'll take children from starting at the age of one. And originally our plan was just to stay with kids until primary school. But what happened is we realized that, you know, obviously the needs change, but the need was very much still there. And we didn't want to leave those, you know, when they got, when the kids got to that kind of crucial age, we didn't want to just 
drop them. Uh, so we started it, uh, we call it a youth apprenticeship program where the kids are working at Casita, like working at our center in different areas. They work in maintenance, they work in education and kind of the different areas of what we're doing. And they're earning a small stipend to be able to go to, to be able to go to high school. But the more important thing is they're staying connected with our staff. And so they have that mentorship, they have that guidance during those really crucial years. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the word daycare, you're right. It kind of, you imagine little kids. And so we've got that, but we kind of have to kind of, you know, adapt our programs to meet all of the different needs. And kids finish our program at the age of 18. We don't have any children beyond 18. Although from there, they kind of switch into if they lived in our foster care program and they hit age 18, then we kind of help them for a couple of years uh, until they get fully on their feet. But that's kind of our our full age range. Yeah, another thought that came to mind is like the Boy Scout or the Girl Scout model, where they get badges for certain skills and mm-hmm. they kind of move up that way. I don't know if you have that or, you know, like in martial arts, they have the the, the belts and you move through the system and you graduate, et cetera. Like, do you, you know, if someone's in your program, do they have tracks to let them know that they've finished the program and they won a badge or they acquired a skill or is it just informal? It's more informal, um, but we do have sort of like different milestones that they hit and there we're always checking on them. Um, for the kids who are in our foster care program, they have, you know, for each age, they have sort of what are the things that we want them to learn by that year. So for instance, they're going to learn how to cook by this age. They're going to learn how to drive a car. They're going to learn how to balance a checkbook how to do basic maintenance, you know, kind of the stuff that you would see in Honduras. So we put ages attached to that and they kind of hit those milestones. That's a really neat idea too, to kind of add on that that recognition. But uh, for now, it's been kind of just more informal as we've been, because to be honest, a lot of what we've done has been, you know, we're kind of making it up as we go along. We're definitely paying attention to a lot of research. We're learning. Um, we have our vision But for me, it's really important to not, you know, to make sure that you have your vision, but that you also are paying attention to what's happening in real life, what's working, what the kids actually need, what, you know what I mean? Because everything changes so rapidly. So we've kind of just been, been evolving our program and how it works as the years go on. Are you get uh, the Copan ruins open and, you know, have you considered maybe some of the local families could act as tour guides for some of the the temples and structures and maybe they can earn money that way and give them a sense of pride. Sure. The uh, ruins are open. We have a couple of our high school students that do an internship there. Um, There is a big group of, of guides that already exist. And so it's kind of a, it's not an area where you can get in. It's kind of already, already pretty saturated, but, but that's big. We go pretty much to visit the ruins about once every month or so for the kids to, to have that experience and to understand their culture. But yeah, we do have a couple of our high school students that do an internship there. So you said you've been in, in Honduras for 10 years. Like, how have you seen it change over the past 10 years? It has changed a lot. It has changed a lot and not changed a lot, I guess, at the same. I don't know. I mean, in our community, there's a lot more, it's gotten a lot more modern. Um, You know, when I first moved there, there was no Wi-Fi except for in like two coffee shops. Now everybody has cell phones, people have smartphones, everyone has Wi-Fi. Um, There's a lot more cars. But the other big change is definitely has to do with migration. You know, there was always, there were always people leaving and people with family in the United States. But at this point now, it's almost it's almost everyone you meet. And so the community, a lot of the a lot of the people that 
were educated well in Copan that had a lot of potential, a lot of people have moved on just because they're really, and it's not, there just really aren't opportunities anymore for young people. So it's definitely very concerning. I don't, I get nervous about Honduras, you know, especially it's just a lot of government corruption. Things aren't looking, aren't looking like they're going to change anytime soon. And so it's very worrisome for the young people that are here. You know, I guess there's a brain drain and the people with more money are leaving, but the remaining community still needs services. So does it change the type of jobs that are valued or is it only like low level, low paying jobs that are left? Where we are, yes. But there is, I mean, there's opportunity in in the larger cities. There's a lot more, you know, there is industry, there are uh, businesses that are starting. And I will say in our small community, there's, there's just that it's a, it's a community that's always kind of been built on entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. So especially after COVID, there were a ton of just little, little restaurants that popped up or people that were doing delivery services, decorating cakes, doing this, that, and the other. Um, and so it was pretty, pretty remarkable, to be honest, how many small businesses started while we were, um, during, during COVID. And we actually kind of joined in that and started an, another program related to Casita that we call Mercadito. And it just means little market. And essentially the idea with Mercadito is if women have kind of an idea for a business that they want to start, they can join our little group. It's a group of women who have business ideas and we have a place where they can work. We have a couple of, we have like stoves and kitchen materials and areas that they can use and they can kind of, it's kind of like a business incubator, a micro business incubator. And we help them kind of come up with what's their plan for their business. What are the things that they need? How can they get that so that they can kind of launch and and make some extra money. So as much as, like you said, it's true, the things are traditional jobs as we, as they knew it, I guess, in the past are changing, but there's still tons of talented people and people looking for ways to make money in this, in this era. I wouldn't say like deliberately franchise or do it so formally, but why not ask either mothers or kids that go through the program, Hey, you know, you can also make money starting a business like this, a daycare yourself. Here's the model. Here's how to run it, you know, and get more of these going. I mean, you there's probably the opportunity for dozens or maybe even hundreds, and that would be jobs for the people that run them, where they could make a, diff- a good income and not have to, you know, go work in someone else's home and help a bunch of kids. Right. Yeah. I mean, that would be that would be kind of the, I guess, continuing what our dream has always been from the beginning, because like I said, we have, we end up using a lot of our resources in our foster care program, to be honest, because when you're totally responsible for kids, it's a bigger, it's a bigger a bigger responsibility, but the daycare center is what is, is really what the core of what we do. It's really the preventative piece. So, so yeah, we've had that dream from the beginning to kind of create several branches and to have like casitas in as many areas as, as you, as they could be, right? Because that need exists. And then if you have the daycare, then more women can go out and work and they can be making more money for their families. So it, it helps the economy all the way through. Are the the women able to pay for the daycare or do they make so little that it has to be something free? For the moms that are part of our organization, it has to be free. Um, What we do to make sure that they're still connected is they do fundraisers throughout the year and different projects. So every month they have to do an activity. We'll do, you know, sales of tamales or other other kind of things that are more common in the community. Um, And so that way they're still participating. And so it's not something that is just being given. We want them to feel uh, feel important and feel that they're they're participating in the organization. But unfortunately, they wouldn't be able to to afford, you know, if it was a pay model. 
but there are people who could, you know, it's, there's obviously different levels of, of society. Well, what would happen if you try to do this in the major city, like Tegucigalpa or San Pedro Sula, do you think it would, would it work or would it have to be very different, the model? I think it would have to be different in now in a bigger city, you would already find, you would find more daycare centers. And to be honest, since I've never lived there, I don't know, I don't know what that would look like. But in a, in a mid-sized city, we've seen similar kind of organizations work in, in the mid-sized cities. I think it could work. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think there's, as you're going to have more, as migration kind of increases, a lot of the people who are leaving are, are men. And so you have even more single mothers or you have grandparents taking care of kids. And so I think that need for daycare is, is something that is growing because more women are going to have to enter, enter the economy. If, uh, you know, if someone fathers a child in Honduras and they just, you know, they're a deadbeat dad, is, is there any governmental or legal mechanism to compel them to pay child support or does that not exist there? Uh, it does exist. And so Honduras has wonderful laws and regulations that exist on paper, but the problem is the implementation. So you can, you know, a father would be, is responsible, but what happens in most cases is the father kind of usually steps out uh, before the baby is even born. And so you have a lot of kids who only have their mother on their birth certificate. So if the father didn't show up for the you know, to have his name on the birth certificate, it's harder to prove that he was the father and you have to do DNA testing and that's outside of most people's financial means. So they are doing, there has been, you know, there have been some new laws that have been passed to try to combat this because it's such a big problem. But again, especially in a rural community like ours, it, there's no there's no kind of government control or any kind of follow-up for things like that. So it's just it's just kind of rampant. Yeah, I was going to suggest something that I guess a bit mercenary, but, you know, if you have a population of single mothers and you, you sit with them and say, like, you know, which one of you has a, 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 you know, the man that fathered the child that's most likely that can be found and identified and compelled to pay something, maybe everyone chips in and helps in that effort and it helps kind of raise money for the, for the community. You know, maybe it's distributed amongst the mothers. I don't know. It's a strange thought, but just an idea. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It would be hard to... People are so used to it that it's kind of like they don't even think it's really the father's responsibility. It's kind of like, you know, there's a it's it's all part of kind of the the machista culture. And so these are these are things that that get in the way of uh, I don't know, it that makes it harder for things like that to happen, but but it would be good. Yeah, do you have any insight into the conditions under which, you know, there'll be, there'll be a one parent home versus a two parent home? Like what what factors contribute to it? Is it, you know, the younger that the girl and the boy are the more likely the father's just going to take off or are there other factors that govern if the family stay together or split I mean I think a lot it's kind of a repeating cycle right so everything kind of comes back to education it comes back to poverty I don't know I mean we see what we see a lot are there's a couple things one I think that people don't have that People aren't taught about healthy relationships. Maybe they never had that example. And so people rush too quickly into relationships. There's also just not a lot of, not a lot of talk about birth control and not a lot of education about how to use preventative measures. So I think what happens is people just end up with babies, you know, and maybe it was, they were just a boyfriend and girlfriend. It, they weren't in it for the long haul. And then a baby is brought into the picture. So it's not always, you know, that there's these, you know, it's not usually the case of a couple that's been together for several years and then the woman gets pregnant and then the father just leaves, you know, it's more, you know, informal and, and people just don't feel the, the weight of it. So I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely think education is probably the biggest factor. You know, there's a lot of infidelity that happens as well. And so sometimes, you know, the father isn't gonna, 
isn't going to claim the child because they have another wife, you know, they have their other family. And so that happens a lot as well. So these would be the kind of the things that I've seen in the time that I've been there that are kind of keeping families from being together. But a lot of it is just repeating cycles. So people haven't had that strong father figure in their lives. And so then it kind of just keeps repeating and repeating. Yeah. What, what about having some of the uh, the older girls and boys, you know, in your daycare, again, go to like some of the schools and speak to the kids there. Uh, it might be just a way to spread the influence of, of good education. And again, they could say, look at me and my circumstance. My mother is also a single mother and, mm-hmm. and so on. And, you know, you guys are in school and beware of this, et cetera, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, the good, the good thing is there are a lot more initiatives kind of working towards that. And so we've, we've been working with, we've worked with other organizations as well to kind of do talks in the schools. And it's something that we wanted to do even more. So there is kind of a push towards that, but I think you're right. Like the more that you can kind of get that message across, you know, it's, it's important to do things like that. Do you guys have a formal donation system where, um, you know, people can donate and it'll go to, you know, X, Y, or Z, or it'll, you know, if you donate X, it'll help support you know, one boy or one girl for one year's worth of education type thing? Yeah. So all of our, we actually are a 501c3 in the United States, as well as having our legal paperwork in in Honduras. So we're registered in both countries. And so we have a, we have a child sponsorship program, which is, there's three tiers. We do 30, 60 and $90 a month. One thing about our sponsorship program that's important is that You are matched with a child, but it's not, we don't wait for sponsors to let children into the program. Does that make sense? So, you know, you will be helping a child, but really you help the work in general, um, because sometimes our kids will come in and out of our program. They might be in with us for a little while because of a family problem, and then they might go back to their their families. So we keep our sponsorship program a little bit more open-ended so that, you know, it doesn't feel like, oh, we have to kick out a child from our program because we don't have enough sponsors this year. You know what I mean? But we do. All of our, all of our donations are right through our website at casitacopan.org. And so we're able to we're able to support all of the all of the work that we do in Honduras. We support through individual donations, pretty much. It's about eighty five percent that come from individual donations. And what about the uh, the people that leave? Do they tend to go to the U.S.? Like where is the great the great brain drain going preferentially? And then you reach out to those people once they get to their new spot and say, hey, don't forget us, please send back help, et cetera. Most people go to the United States. Um, and it's very common now for people, at least one family member to be living in the United States and to be sending money back to support several family members in Honduras. Um, people, the other thing that a lot of people do is they'll go and they'll work for a period of time, but their plan is to is to move back. That's kind of a, a misconception that a lot of people have about, about migrants. You know, a lot of times they're leaving and going to the United States, not because they don't love their country or because they don't want to live in their country. It's just they feel that they're there isn't an opportunity for them to take care of their families. So a lot of times their plan is to raise as much money as they can, build houses back in Honduras, and then come back after a couple of years. Well, very good. Um, what's Where can people donate? Like, where should they go? What's a good, is it the website, casitacopan.org, or where should they go for more yes, info? Yes, absolutely. If they visit our website, which is just casitacopan, so C-A-S-I-T-A-C-O-P-A-N.org, um, and you'll see right there on the front um, how to donate and how to support the work that we're doing. Okay, very good. Well, Emily, thank you for coming on and thank you for what you do. It's very, very important. Thank you for, for giving me a chance to talk about it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.